0: Please stand with us for the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Exodus 19, verse 16 through 20, verse 3. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, chapter 20, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me.
1: Thank you, you can be seated. Good morning. It's uh, so very good to be with you this morning on this Lord's Day. My name is Ian. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and I have the privilege of bringing the word to you this morning. And um, if you're just joining us, we've been studying the book of Exodus for uh, several months now, Uh, beginning last week in chapter 19, we reached a pivot in the narrative of uh, God's preparing to give the law. So we're going to slow down uh, in the series to uh, look at the individual Ten Commandments of God at Sinai. And before we do begin, let's uh, commit our time to the Lord. Father, Son, Spirit, you are holy. Your name is altogether righteous and good. Your works speak of your faithfulness and your holiness as holiness befits your house. Your dwelling place is in the heavens and all the earth and the heavens belong to you, Lord. You are the sovereign. Father, help us to submit to you. I pray that the meditations of my heart and the words this morning would give honor to you, Lord and that you would accomplish your purposes as you promised to do with each of us by the hearing of your word. So Lord, we do love you, and we praise you for Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, at this point in the journey, Israel is roughly seven weeks out from their exodus from Egypt. And uh, they've come now to the wilderness of Sinai. And this is the very spot where God appeared to Moses in the burning bush back in Exodus chapter 3. And there God confirmed to Moses that once he and Israel reached this mountain, Mount Sinai, uh, he would be assured that God is truly with him. So this is a pivotal moment. It's a climactic moment. God has brought Israel uh, and now to this mountain to give this law, to display himself in this way that he's never done before and never will do again. So this is such a remarkable event that uh, quite honestly for us, it's, it's difficult to fathom it. And yet we are given so much detail in the text. So it's crucial that we do try and fathom what the Israelites experienced here. Now, in chapter 19, we're told that the Lord instructs Moses the people be consecrated. They'd be ceremonially washed for two days They set boundaries around the mountains so that they and even their animals couldn't get close. All this is to prepare them and protect them, really, for what is to happen on the third day. So as we uh, consider the gravity of this moment in redemptive history, uh, we'll, we'll process together two why questions. And the first is, why this mighty display from God? Why does he go about things this way? And secondly, why this law? And we'll look particularly at the first commandment there in verse 3. So let's consider the first question. you got try to try to imagine the scene, right? There's a lot of anticipation from the Israelites leading up to this third day. And, and, and early in the morning on that day, they begin to hear thunder. And right? they see big flashes of lightning. And a really thick, dark cloud descend onto the mountain that's right in front of them. Uh, soon after, they hear a very loud trumpet blast that intensifies by the minute. The whole mountain is engulfed in flames. The smoke is rising into the heavens. It's trembling violently. And when God eventually speaks, his voice sounds like deafening thunder. So if you're seeing something like this, what is going through your mind? This is just utterly overwhelming. It's sensory overload. And Israel really doesn't know exactly what the Lord will do here. They know he will speak with them, but he not, they're not sure what he... He's going to say, um, you know, you got to wonder if they're thinking, is this it? Have we come to this mountain for God's reckoning after all that we've done against him, after all the complaining and sin and willful disobedience? Is this it? Is this it? So it's a fearful moment. And you know, there could have been a million and one ways for God to go about this, and that's why we're asking the why question. Why, again, did the Lord display himself in this awesome way at Sinai? Well, I think first, This is God. This is what he's like. You know, maybe we don't think of him this way often, but this is a picture of his essence, of his limitless power and authority. He's a terrifying spectacle. He's a consuming fire, as the Bible says. And this is just a glance at his holiness. He's not like anything that is on the earth or anyone that is on the earth. And his name here reflects that. It matches the display of what Israel's seeing. So what he says, and you got to remember, he says it in thunder, it's deafening thunder, startling, Yehovah Elohim, I am the Lord your God. And here's kind of a little translation of that name. I am the self-existing, eternal, supreme, almighty, creator, God. This name, this majestic name, is the reason that the Lord says things like this of himself elsewhere in scripture. He says, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. He says, I am the first I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And so the writer of Hebrews gets it right when he says, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Yet what's remarkable is that even this fantastic display is only a tiny microcosm of God's magnitude and power. He's cloaking it here. Scripture says his greatness is unsearchable. There's no end to it. We'll never know the vastness of it. Nevertheless, why is God displaying himself in this unique way at Sinai? He is here demonstrating to Israel the grandeur of his authority, confirming to them that he is the only one to whom they must listen and worship. And they're terrified. They are terrified. They'll do whatever God wants them to do. That's what they swore in chapter 19, right? In verse 8. We will do all the Lord has spoken. They'll promise it again later in Exodus. We will do all the Lord's commands. They swear it. But here's the thing. No, they won't. No, they won't. We know how this story will go. They will defiantly rebel against God. They will refuse to keep his commands. So now we ask, well, why the law then? And God knows they won't keep it, so why give it? And as much as the law is put in place to restrain sin, right, as a standard of moral purity, right, as really a reflection of God's righteous perfection, the law is also in place to reveal sin. Israel would eventually lose complete sight of all that and and think that the law is in place to remove sin, to actually have life, but the law was never in place for that. God put it in place to reveal sin, Sin, to make it obvious, to let us see ourselves, the very depths of our hearts. And that's why Paul in Romans chapter 7 he says this: if it hadn't been for the law, I would not have known sin. I wouldn't know what it is to covet if the law said, had not said, You shall not covet. But sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. You know, there's something about the human heart. That any time it's told it cannot have or it cannot do something, it will pine over that thing, right? It will yearn like it's the only thing that matters. And if you've been around toddlers for like five seconds, you've seen this, right? They pick up something off the ground, and you tell them, do not put that in your mouth. Don't do it. No, 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 stop, stop, and then what happened? Right away. Yes. With a smile, right? And it gets worse, right? So now they know the command. They know that they should not eat that thing, right? So what do they do? Behind your back, they go and sneak around looking for it and stuff as much as they can in their faces, right? But we're all like this. We're all greedy little toddlers. We're just, we're just a little more sophisticated about it. And, but why are we like this? The answer, you know, theological answer, right, is we're sinful. That's true. But more specifically, we are God's. We believe we are God's. What we say matters. What we say goes. We answer to no one. To whom will you liken me? We say. To whom will you compare me? I will accomplish all my purpose. Look at the works of my hands. What God says of God, we say of ourselves. And so, inside the heart of each one of us is a throne room where a little king sits who governs all that we think and do. He makes the laws. He forms the decrees. He determines the allegiances that will best benefit him and his kingdom. And what I'm saying is that when you zoom in close on that little king, you discover it's you. You're the king. I'm the king. We often refer to this as pride, but it goes much deeper than that. We have ultimate rule and authority we are kings, and that's what the Lord knows of us. But it's not what we know or, or maybe willing to admit about ourselves. You know, Proverbs 21 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Right? Each one of us thinks that we're doing well overall. And this can especially be true in the church, in Christian circles, where you know, we had a good week, didn't do anything too terrible, so we're good, moral, upright, everything's great. Proverbs 21 again says, But the Lord weighs the heart. So the Lord in his infinite grace and wisdom gives us this first commandment. You shall not, you shall have no other gods before me. So let's take a look at this command together. There are a few assumptions made by God here. This is the first one. Human beings are by nature worshipers. We worship. God presumes that we will worship either Him, the big G God, or little g gods. But there's no in between. It's one or the other. So, real quickly, what does it mean to worship? Because I think worship, you say that and it has like a buzzword to it a little bit. Um, but what we mean when we say worship is that it's, worship is being wholly devoted, heart, soul, mind, strength to someone, something, or self. It's all consuming. It's the air we breathe. It's what we long for all the time. And whether we're aware of it or not, we're always worshiping. We're always giving allegiance to another. It can show up in what excites us, what scares us, what we pay for, what we pray for, what depresses us, what gives us joy. With every motive, every decision, impulse, reaction, every thought, we either worship the creator or we worship Created, So that's the first assumption God's making here. We are, by nature, by design, worshipers. And here's the second one. Um, The Lord is acknowledging here not only that we are worshipers, but that we are worshipers of other gods. He's not giving credence to the existence of other gods, right? Scripture is very clear that no other god actually exists but God alone, but the Lord is acknowledging that we are prone to worship other gods. Saying you shall have no other gods before me implies you do have other gods before me and they need to go. The Lord is well aware of the gods in our lives, but I have to ask both for myself and for us here this morning, are we aware? What are the gods we worship? Israel's looked a lot different from ours, of course, but what are ours? This command is alive and well for us. We still are prone to this. And gods can come in virtually any form. Some are more subtle. Some are more obvious. But some are really wonderful things that no one can detect as gods that we worship. And I think uh, we can uncover our gods by honestly asking ourselves, what is ultimate? What is shaping me? Who or what has the most influence on me? Where am I giving my attention? God sees our gods, but he wants us to see our gods and remove them. And I think a question the Lord might ask is is, is not merely where are the gods of your heart, identify which gods you're worshiping, but far deeper. Why are they there? Why are they there? What fault did you find in me, the Lord says, that you would go after worthlessness and become worthless? That's what's really underneath this first command. The Lord not only sees our gods, but he knows what they do to us. If you could turn with me briefly to uh, Psalm 115 in your Bibles. It's a wonderful psalm. The psalmist in uh, verse four, and I'll just summarize um, all the God, He says all the gods we fashion for ourselves are lifeless and useless. But consider that uh, the insight in verse eight, when he says that when we trust in these gods, we become like them. What does that mean? It means we become lifeless and useless too. We look alive but are dead spiritually before God. We have mouths, but we do not speak anything edifying or godly. We have eyes, but we use them for evil. We have ears, but we don't listen to God or his word. We have feet, but we don't follow the Lord or go places that honor him. The gods we worship corrode our very souls to become unrecognizable, miserable men and women. You know, isn't it interesting that whenever successful people are honest, right, and they finally get... Everything they've worked so hard for—you know—they get the trophy or the money or whatever it is—and they're left thinking, "Is this it? Is this all there is?" You know, Tom Brady retired this last week, kind of an end of an era. Um, But do you remember what he said in 2005? He was on a 60 Minutes interview. This was after his third Super Bowl ring. What did he say? Maybe you've seen the interview. This can't be all there is. There's got to be more. He goes, he's at the top of his game literally, and he sees what's up there, right? And he concludes it's vanity. It's vanity. Like a modern-day King Solomon. Or maybe you've had the experience where, you know, you're on the hunt. You're on the hunt for something you knew was sinful, but you wanted it. And so you made your plans. You set aside your schedule. You did everything you could to finally get that sinful thing that you craved. And immediately after you indulged, you're reminded of your internal misery, and that is all other gods can do for us. They cannot help us, they cannot satisfy us, love us, or get us through hardships. It is so tempting in this life to want to swerve off and grab that gratifying thing that's going to satiate our stress and overwhelmness for a few minutes. And I know we live in a day of highly anxious and overwhelmed people. I can very easily fall into that camp. But when we're tempted, to take that plunge into whatever form of ungodliness that it is. We have to somehow shout to ourselves, that way is death. That will destroy me. Because you know that every time you've left the true God to go worship another God, you're left with that pit, right? That, that feeling of utter helplessness and hopelessness and feeling alone. The crazy part is, is that we keep going back, right? We're just like Israel. We keep thinking this time will be different. It's what, this is what we need. This is what will truly help. Um, The 10 commands do not come from a God who just wants to hold his thumb over us and tell us, do, you know, do what I say or else. He's a God who cares deeply for us who does not want to see us ruin ourselves at the altar of another God. He knows that we can't have two masters, right? We will either love the one and hate the other, as Jesus said, or we'll be devoted to one and despise the other. He doesn't desire we despise him. He desires we turn to him, that we love him with all of our being. Because that's truly what's best for us. He made us. He knows us. And he desires us. As a father desires a wayward son, so the Lord desires his children. So taking a pivot to the close here, I think if if we left today thinking, I gotta do better. I've got gods in my life. I know what they are. I gotta get rid of them. I think that'd be a tragedy. That's not the takeaway. Because again, the law of God is not designed to make us righteous, it won't turn us into good people. It's designed to show us that no one is righteous, not one. In fact, it intends to prove that we are enslaved. We're enslaved to sin. And that's the irony here. God has delivered the Israelites from physical slavery in Egypt to reveal to them their spiritual slavery to sin. Egypt, as terrible as that was, was not their real problem. It was a temporal problem. Their rebellious hearts are the problem. That's their eternal problem. And that problem remains this morning for each of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned aside to our own way. God wants us to feel this burden. We're supposed to feel the burden, the burden of guilt before God. My brothers and sisters, do you feel it? Do you feel it? If you don't, I, I, I want to say this as kindly as I can. But if you if you don't, you have gods in your life that you're unwilling to leave behind. And as I said earlier, the reason you have other gods is because you are God. Your way goes. What you want matters. And that way only leads to destruction. There aren't any scales at the end of this, right? That are tipped by our good behavior, our winsome personality, our successes, and our fortunes. You need to turn to this God. This one. Submit yourself to him because there isn't a message of hope for any who are not wrecked by their sin, for any who don't acknowledge their guilt before the God of Sinai. But if you do mourn your sin, right? if your heart is cut by it, and by that I mean grieved over your rebelliousness against the Lord, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, right? Psalm 51. That kind of grief, godly grief As it's called, there's indelible hope for you, unfailing hope for you, because God sent forth his son, born of a woman, and listen to this, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Jesus Christ, the lawgiver, took on the form of a lawbreaker. The word of God, as he's called, who I believe is speaking here at Mount Sinai, was born in the likeness of men to submit himself, to be called under the law as a man in order to perfectly obey all of God's law, not just outwardly, but inwardly, from his heart, always doing what pleased the Father, never once worshiping at the altar of another God with his heart or with his hands. Why? So that he might receive punishment. Imagine that? He lived his life perfectly sinless before the Lord to receive punishment from the Lord as a lawbreaker to remove the punishment for every lawbreaker who trusts him to be their savior and their god the law does not remove our guilt it cannot it's not meant to only christ can only christ can we rely on Christ's law keeping his obedience his record to god not ours and we rely on his offering for sin, which we know was accepted by God the Father because Christ was raised on the third day. And what does this mean for us then? It means we don't have to be enslaved. We don't have to be enslaved to sin. There is no reason to remain enslaved to our sin anymore. I know that the gods uh, you know, that plague us seem much more powerful than they really are. You know, it can feel like we'll never be free of them, and if the Son of God had not left heaven and Paid our debt before a holy God, we couldn't be free of them. But in Christ, we are free. We are truly free. Free from the curse and burden of the law. Free from eternal punishment from a holy God. Free from shame. Free from fearing we're too far gone to be loved by God. And we're not just free from things in Christ, right? We're free to do things too. We're free to love God with our lives. We're free to trust Him. We're free to mature in the truth of His Word. We're free to pray. We're free to actually give ourselves to others for their benefit. We're free to walk by the Spirit of God rather than our old ways. We're free to know joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. And we're free to know God himself. That's what we have in Christ. It is real freedom to worship the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent for us. Galatians 5, right? For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Beloved, who do you worship? Who do you worship? Choose today, this morning. Who you will worship? Will it be a lesser God who who promises life but can only deliver destruction and death in the end? Or will it be the God of Sinai, of whom there is no other, and who gave his life for lawbreakers? Choose today who you will worship. Lord God, you are worthy of every ounce of our attention, our affection. You are worthy of our lives. But we thank you, Lord, that even the little pittance that we can offer you is still meaningless in comparison to what we have in Christ, the blessed hope of the one who was put on a cross for our sake and killed our sin with him buried it, and on the third day rose to be the object of our hope. We have life in his name. Thank you, Lord, that we can claim your freedom this morning. I pray for any, Lord, who are obstinate, who don't care about what's been shared, who are just, their pulse hasn't gone up one bit before you, Lord, the God of Sinai, the God who doesn't change You are a righteous God, and you rightly punish sin. But you have punished your own son for sin. So help us, Father, to trust him and to love him in new ways. Thank you, Lord, for the good God that you are. Free us in your name. We love you, Lord. In Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Beloved, let's stand as we worship the Lord in song.